So, well, <coughs> morning. Hi, love the hat. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm allowed to wear hats, though, right? I can wear it in class. Can you work in class? Can I wear it in class? No, sure you can. It was it wasn't ironical. It was really I like a hat. I mean, it's nice. Um, so, uh, was um, was wondering if you had questions whatsoever about or things you wanted to discuss. I had asked you last time to think of some topic of uh, the, the play that we've read and uh, questions or discussions you wanted to arise about, uh, about Plotus' rugged sol soldier. Just in case you prepared some sort of topic to go over. Or if you didn't prepare it, to come up with something to discuss. Please. Basically, I think that uh, there is uh, nobody would have got gotten offended. I think because uh, there are free men and free men on the stage. Although we tend to say that the servant is the hero, uh, the young free man, Pleusicles, is uh, the good example of how a free man, pretty much more or less, should be. Whereas a braggart soldier is distinguished. Is distinguished uh, I mean, it's different from the other free men on the scene. I don't think that there is a, dis um, a, a mockery of free people and uh, an exaltation of the slave, which actually inverts the social order. First of all, I think of it because it, we're in Greece and it, we're in a comedy situation which is constantly, uh, accurately separated from reality. But also I think that it just has to do with some stupid masters. Think of uh, Periplectomenos and Pleusicles. They are good examples. And uh, Pleusicles, I think, is the one who saves the fatherland in, par in particular, because he's the one that, even talking with Periplectomenus, peri um, he reasserts the values of Roman, so of Roman society. Although I see, I see how these uh, social <coughs> questions about the drama may be, may be important uh, in a society where slaves used to be there and probably used to be part of the public, of the audience. It seems to me, in general, that lower-class citizens... Um, I'm thinking of the dynamics between rich and poor people on the scene. Farmers are often mocked, mocked, but farmers tend to be poor in Roman society, we can think, but not necessarily. In, first of all, the farmers wouldn't necessarily be there, although they would come to Rome for the, for the festivals. Every Roman who, conceive, who went, who actively participated to to the to the ludi to the plays uh, to the festivals, I think he would conceive himself first himself firstly as a citizen, as an urban character, and he would participate in this mockery of the of the country. Now, I I wrote an article in particular on this contraposition between city and country, and I personally think that uh, even in Plodus, which is an archaic author, we st we already have uh, a self identity self identity um, identification process of Rome in terms of citizens and urban environment as opposed to to the country, which goes back a little bit to the mockery of the country that is present in Hellenistic literature, which is what I try to argue in the article as well. Theocritus as well, for instance, Galatea, um, Polyphemus and Galatea, etc. So I don't know, what do you think about it? Do you think that uh, 
it is socially disruptive, socially problematic that a slave has so much power on the scene. I don't know. Yes, you again and anybody else, of course. If this happened, I, I agree. But I, this is what I was going to answer. But very briefly, that's also true that the servant in Plodus has a particularly important role. He's even identified with the author in a way, in a symbolic way. So this is slightly more than what you're saying. I mean, that's right, that the fact that the, must, the slave is mastering, is commanding the master, is paradoxical. And is, as we read in the readings for today, an, an exemplification of the Aristotelic theory of... Uh, um, of incongruity, so something completely absurd happens opposite to what opposite to what you expect, and so you laugh. But there is also something more because he has implodus as opposed to the new comedy to the Greek models. He has a particularly important role. But this is right. This is what I was going to ask. But then there is Andrew, and then you. Womanizing is a nice verb, I didn't know it. Oh, I like it, thank you. That's pretty interesting, I will talk about this in a second. The mic first. The ones who are sitting in the audience. Yeah, yeah, so you're talking about this, about this. Is oh, okay. Yes, that's a pretty famous premium yeah, impulse. Uh huh. Well, it says that the children are crying and they should be taken off. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. That the audience was an interclassic audience, interclassist audience. Uh huh. Yes, I didn't say what you said. Dif differentiated receptions in the public according to social layers. Um, yes, that's interesting. I think that though that each one of them would, of course, perceive generally the whole thing because also there are comic uh, rules of the genre. I mean, you expect in Plodus, if you've seen other plays of Plodus, that the servant is gonna is going to mock. But yes, I, I do I do agree on the fact that uh, it appeals it can appeal any layer of society in a different way. It's in, it's particularly interclassist. But I wouldn't go too far too far because I'm European and I'm not American. So Americans tend to be more social and political in reading texts, and we Europeans tend to be more boring and literary and meta literary and cerebral and artificial. So I wouldn't go too far in that because I think that plot is no revolutionary. Then there's um, lady after a while uh, in a second, please. Sorry for not managing this discussion with the right idioms. Okay, please. I heard it as the idea of like a pressure balance in a lot of things, and so I think. Who is exposed? Um, just social tensions in general with comedy, mm -hmm. you know, always being not in control and whatnot. And it's almost like acceptable to kind of things in reverse, so that people mm -hmm. can just discuss these issues if it is and why it's so effective. Well, I think there are two different things you're saying. First of all, the situation of the carnival. You know, the carnival idea is that in some situations, like the Ludi, things are reversed. And this is what, uh, what Duckworth says uh, in terms of uh, comic spirit, in terms of, uh, how do you say it, playful spirit, playful spirit. So the last, the pleasure for 
laughing just for laugh's sake, nothing too intellectual. Um, but I think that this is connected with uh, the, uh, the situation of the carnival, so this inverting reality in a social setting, setting. That is, as we said, leisure, leisure and work. When we're outside of work, when we're outside of where power and money work, we are in a festival where the whole society joins together and we see a play where the slaves are the masters, etc. I think this is not separated, as Duckworth says, uh, as Duckworth says uh, from the idea of uh, an incongruity. I think there is a social incongruity which is ritual, and so it's not dangerous mm -hmm. for society. When masters for one day become slaves, become master. Um, so that's uh, why I again say, but this is my personal opinion, that it's not socially dangerous, socially disruptive. That's, that's pretty interesting as well, yeah. And, uh, and so is there an issue really which is discussed or not? Which is the question that I would like to arise, but which is the reason by arised by this, uh, uh, by this suggestion, which is, is there really a discussion on society on this? About the soldier, I would like to say something later on, which is interesting. But, but Lali, please. your viewpoint saying that it's not only craftful, craftful, it's particularly craftful being a sort of dramatist, and we are within literature, so it's particularly possible. What you're asking about, what you're suggesting actually about Odysseus is very interesting. In ancient Greece, we had two different figures which were often contraposed, which are Odysseus and Ajax. Ajax, I say with the Greek pronunciation, you probably write it with J, so you probably say Ajax. And Odysseus. Now, Ajax is the typical Iliad character, and Odysseus belongs to the Odyssey, of course. Well, both, but both appear in the in the in the in the, in the Iliad as uh, characters having a role. As you're saying, what actually moves the action, what actually solves the action, is the trickery of uh, of Odysseus. Um, but the two conceptions of uh, human uh, quality and virtue were problematized uh, in uh, ancient myth in, a, in an episode, in an epic episode, which was called The Duel for the, for the Arms. So I don't know how it was, uh, um, Armorum Content, I don't know in, how it is in English. Okay, The Duel, the, what do you say in English? The Strike, the Dispute for the Arms. For the weapons, arms. 
The idea is that Achilles dies, and his arms has to be given to some other hero, which is a big honor. And the two hero heroes who claim, who pretend they, they are worth, they, they deserve those arms, those arms are Odysseus and Ajax, and they contend with each other. This topic is very, very successful also in, uh, uh, in um, Roman tragedy, and it's uh, taken away, it's uh, reworked uh, in Latin literature pretty often. The idea is that they represent two different forms of uh, human accomplishment. The cunning, trickery, one, intelligence, not bravery, uh, which is Odysseus, which is more rational, he has his feet on the ground. And Ajax is the pure hero, he's tough, he's uh, not caring about danger, he's not even trickery at all, he's one tr a one-track mind person. Mm, and eventually Jesus gets, gets the weapons, and uh, Ajax feels he's deceived, feels that justice has been, has been um, as you say, uh, defeated in this, in this uh, dispute. Uh, so yes, I do think that in the ancient world, there's even this Greek tradition of uh, the cunning hero, and uh, in some contexts, this is o this can override um, some sort of uh, ar artificial, abstract, uh, you know, purity values. And I do think that the, the um, and I'm not the only one, as far as I can recall, who claim this parallel between the servant and the and the Odysseus and Odyssea kind of intelligence. Interesting. Any, anyone else? <coughs> I killed the discussion with my long digression. I'm very sorry. But please, let's make it revive. Yeah. Uh, maybe. It's not true. And I'm wondering, like, do you have any say on this? Is that true? And, and why? Is it because of immigration? Or what's the point of the. No, no, honestly, I had never, never came across this issue so far. This is the first time I hear. That there was this sort of physical characterization, ethnical characterization. I don't know. I don't really recall. Well, the only hair characterization I know from my readings, from poetry and from some prose of the Augustan age and Republican age, is uh, between the the blonde men and women, especially women, and and dark hair. I mean, the Greeks conceived themselves as dark-haired, but uh, ancient Greek literature, um, the divinities are blonde, just because they're different. Uh, well, this is typical, the full by, and often the letting, um, the letting women, uh, like the elegiac mistress, is blonde, full by, and uh, this is some, Ovid even says that many women dye their hair, and she's, he's very angry about that. So this differentiation, blonde, dark, I knew it as an ethical differentiation, and uh, the blonde is considered somehow normally sexually attractive, and gods, uh, goddesses obviously are this form of uh, idealized woman. I didn't know about red hair. I mean, there is, there is this word in Latin. Maybe just because a lot of the uh, slaves came up north, and a lot of the like, mm -hmm. like, tracks of their have red hair. Could be. Could be. Well, I'm, just, I'm wondering myself, because I think we are in the 3rd century AD, uh, BC, and so... Red hair, oh well, okay. The conception of slavery and social differentiation is very variable uh, historically, and I've heard that uh, if I came to the United States, uh, like my grand grandfather came in the end of the 18, 1800s, I wouldn't have been white, for instance. Look, turns out because I'm Italian, and apparently back then whites were all in northern 
European uh, people and Italians and Greeks were not white. There's, there's, I don't know why. Um, it's pretty funny because the human, the human race, which I, you know, you know, Einstein when he was asked, to, he entered the United States, he was asked to write down his race, and he wrote human. And when I applied to, to the APA, American Philosophy Association, they asked me for the race. I was very tempted to write down human, just to feel intelligent like Einstein. But he had also guts, because I, he was, I was jeopardizing my, I don't know, admission or whatever. So, so I didn't do it. And uh, with my highest shame. Yeah, I think that these things are so, so much socially variable. You, of course, the so-called race, which I really don't like. In Europe, we don't use that word at all because I've I've learned at school that they're just a human race. I mean, we don't have races like in dogs, biological. But whatever. The real there is a biological basis for that. But the real thing that we are affected from is not biological at all, but it's completely cultural and social. So the fact that uh, we don't have such things, yes, but we do have uh, biases and prejudices based on on, on our perce our perception of race. And so uh, these these comparisons are basically impossible. I don't know. The answer is I don't know, of course. <laughs> Long answer for that. Uh, yes. Miles, M I L E S, is Latin for a soldat. Eh, it's Latin for Italian soldat, which is English soldier. Soldier in the miles. There is something which was, uh, which I guess uh, struck at, at the moment, uh, in a minute, then I realized it, I thought the students could be confused by this. There are many soldiers in many different places of, uh, you have noticed this, sometimes he talks about different soldiers. The character, this character is not one of the m main characters of comedy, which are, you know, the young man, the old the wise man, the old, um, the old uh, lover, etc. But he is a, a recurrent character. He's not a standard f character, but he's recurrent. Mm -hmm. Other questions, or suggestions, <laughs> or ideas? Uh, how about the readings of today? Something could we could try to go over the readings of today, trying to compare that to use this uh, higher knowledge, uh, theoretical awareness, to apply it to our play. Um, this is the broken soldier. Something else. How did you find the readings for today in terms of understandability and? Usefulness at all. Can I? Heavy? Well, yeah, that's. Really? Well, I mean, they, they brought up new points and different perspectives on it, but more or less, I think, as far as that guy, I think, summarized Aristotle. Uh -huh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they were saying that the most sophisticated modern techniques you can use mm -hmm. are really just more specialized branching out. I, I do agree, yeah. Now that you tell me what I meant. I, I like the breakdown of how Plotus tended to use things and mm -hmm. parents and more towards. But as far as just naming different philosophers and restating, they all pretty much agree with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, it did seem a little repetitive. Yes, and I forgot one thing. I wanted to give you a quiz today. <laughs> I said, let's wait that anybody comes to class. And uh, here is a quiz, I'm sorry. Well, yes, let's, uh, uh, let's make this quiz in five minutes. And uh, it's really... Nothing, nothing special. Thank you. And uh, then we talk about the readings, please. Here.
we had readings for today. You have leftovers? Give them to me. Thank you. Ah, surprise, surprise. Okay, hello. Okay. How was it? Of course, Massimiliano Licastro is a good friend of mine in Messina. He's my age. Scholar is maybe too much, but he studies Stoicism, and that's why the Stoics were returning, although they have nothing to do with the readings <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but they had to do with each other. Like Massimiliano, I studied Stoicism. He's written a 500 pages dissertation that I sus he suspects his advisor hasn't read. <laughs> but he got his PhDs, but no, okay. That's good. He's a good one. Okay, now let's go over the thing. Now, who are the two ancient scholars? And Kevin told me, told us again. He, Aristotle. Aristotle and Plato. Aristoteles, I wrote it a big way. According to Cooper, Aristotle's theory of comedy. So the Coisilinian tractate is, is a precious trait testimony for the, the Aristotle's theory of comedy. Do you remember why it's so important for us to reconstruct something about Aristotle's theory on comedy as opposed to tragedy? It didn't survive. What did not survive? Yeah, Cooper. Cooper is the guy who wrote it. The ancient source is the Coislinian tractate. Mm -hmm. It's probably based on this is Cooper's theory. I mean, it's always hard. Okay, let's let's say it from the beginning. Uh, Aristotle wrote a is is the first categoric author of Greek literature. I mean, a Greek literature and philosophy. He's the first one who creates this idea of categorization of knowledge. Before Aristotle and before Plato, it's complex, of course, more complex than we can say in five minutes. Greek philosophy was ma was more similar to all archaic societies' knowledge, wisdom. You know, all ancient societies have a sort of figure of the wise person, who is a little bit a magician, a little bit uh, a moral guide, a little bit a person who studies nature and religion and gods, uh, etc. Uh, the first so-called philosophers in uh, Greece, uh, the so-called pre-Socratic before Socrates philosophers, were s more similar to these sort of half-religious, half-witches, uh, um, half-wise uh, uh, philosophers, thinkers, in a city-state, in a small society, in a small community. The first philosophers who uh, categorize their thoughts in a more modern way are Plato, with the complexity of his thoughts, but he is uh, probably the first big philosopher to write down his works uh, in prose and in a way which, are, which we consider to be a literary way. So he's the, one of the founders of the, the Greek philosophy as we conceive it. And the other big one is Aristotle, who divides, for instance, knowledge in, in a technical way into branches. Well, so he writes um, treatises, tractates, on different topics, creating, basically, and founding the disciplines as we know it in the modern age. He's the one who, who basically invents grammar as a separate uh, branch of knowledge, poetics as reflection on poetry, uh, mechanics, physics, uh, theology, etc. 
physics, metaphysics. Well, metaphysics is not his invention. I don't want to give him too much credit. But he writes two, for instance, two important treatises, which are politics and poetics. The poetics of Aristotle and the politics. The poetics of Aristotle treat, talk basically about tragedy. The title is poetics, so about uh, how you write poetry, about literature, but it basically doesn't speak about epic, about uh, comedy, about mime, uh, about all forms of possible literature, but only about tragedy. What is particularly striking is that we don't have any, any book, any d precise discussion on comedy. Since he is so precise and detailed in categorizing tragedy, we expect that there should have been something similar about comedy, especially because he's so systematic in his thought and his writings. Okay, that was long and you're bored. Okay, let's go to something else. So we don't have the second, but this is a little bit of a, of a creamy. A creamy is German for um, police story. How do you say it? Like a mystery, whatever. It's a sort of mysterious story of ancient literature because scholars have long debated on uh, whether this book, this comedy book, would ex have existed or not, ever, ever been written or not. And uh, if it's there, where is it? And so this is part of this sort of theological mystery. Uh, Cooper says that this, this um, uh, Coislinian tractate is, comes from there. It's a good uh, summarization, at least, of Aristotle's ideas. The problem about Aristotle and Plato is the following, one of the many, is that they, made, they created a school. So basically, there is an Aristotelic or peripatetic or academic, or um, uh, peripatetic, right, uh, school, philosophical school, philosophers going back to Aristotle in the following centuries until, un until the late antiquity and later on. And we sometimes have their writings, as well as the ones of the Platonic philosophers. Also, Plato founded the school, the Academia, and we have the academic philosophers in the following centuries. And so, so we, have, we want sometimes to reconstruct the Aristotelic thought, or sometimes we, we unconsciously, uh, identify Aristotle with the Aristotelic philo later philosophers, which is not often <laughs> the case. Uh, this is one of those problems. How much is, the, is this uh, Coislinian tractate actually an instance of uh, Aristotle's thought? How much does it uh, instead come from a personal reflection? How much does it come from a contamination between Aristotelic and Platonic or really Stoic thought, etc.? But this is the theory that Cooper presents, which is one of the possible theories which actually comes from our desire of uh, having this famous reflection on comedy we don't have. Anyhow, number three. Who wrote extensively about the nature of the laughable? Cicero and Quintilian. Cicero in the De Oratore and Quintilian in the De Institutione Oratoria, or Institutio Oratoria. It's in the reading, so I don't write it down. So th basically, the two, these two authors, which is interesting, uh, who knows... Who's familiar with, play, with Cicero and Quintilian? What is the De Oratore of uh, Cicero? What does he talk about? It's, in English, it's about the orator. Speeches in public. So his interest is not uh, about comedy, but it's about oratory. Now, in the Roman culture, in the Roman culture of the Republican er age in particular, but also in, I would say, in the whole principate, at least, uh, until later to antiquity, the main skill for a person who would enterprise a public career was to be able to speak in public, to create a critical speech. This is, in, in my European eyes, quite similar to what happens in America, where you all write papers, which we don't do in Italy. We have oral examinations. I've been told by Professor Blank, by people I've been talking about, 
that writing paper is important because it builds up your critical skills, it helps you improve your critical skills and uh, your ability to build up a critical and a creative and documented discourse. You know, it's not only reading and passively absorbing, but about recreating a discourse. Same thing in the ancient Rome. It was considered fundamental that a learned person would take part in the public life, would be able to learn about philosophy, about the topic, and build up a discourse. So the ho much, much of the higher education in ancient Rome was dedicated to oratory, meaning to be able to deliver public speeches. You know, this is not the case in our society, so it's something I always found pretty funny how we consider very important the things that we do. If you're not able to write a paper, it's uh, very bad, you know? It's fundamental. But in Italy, you don't have to write a paper at all. And in ancient Rome, it was fundamental that you were able to build up a discourse in public. Whereas today, I, have, I know people who have jobs in university who are not good at pub speaking in public, like me. Uh, so, and, uh, but still, you know, you, not, they don't have oratorial skills, but this is not considered fundamental. Then again, the, the theories of education, that is, what is fundamental to build up a person, a learned person who must have a role in society, change and vary socially very much. But why am I going through this path which has nothing to do with comedy? It has to do with comedy because the reflections that we have in Rome about comedy and the laughable are into texts, texts which are, I would say it's a little much, too much, but textbooks about how to become an orator. De oratore, it's not a textbook, it was used surely in the school, but it's a treaty on how the perfect orator should be able to speak in public, you know, in, in court. And de istitutione oratoria, or istitutio oratoria, is, uh, is, it could be translated like oratory uh, education. So then again, how to build up a person who can speak and write correctly. And so comedy is a part of it. Then again, the reflection on, com on comedy and the same idea of uh, laughable, of comic spirit, is, uh, passes through different um, cultural environments and has different, and takes different forms, also literary forms. Uh, okay, according to that works, well, the, the, in the modern age, as Kevin was quite correctly saying, the point of view of this guy, of Duckworth, who is a classicist, is that everything else boils down to the two main classical theories, which are re-elaborated, he says, but we should recount to see it, if it's right. I, I couldn't say, honestly, you know, if, if his harsh judgment is right. He says that the modern theories are the theory of superiority and the theory of... Inf uh, no, I'm reading the wrong... Uh, and, the, and the theory of incongruity. The theory of superiority in modern times is retaken, he says, or modern philosophers would say is invented by Hobbes. What does it consist in, people? The theory of superiority. Um, the audience has an edge on, on either the moral characteristics of the people or the plotline itself. Which is, the, the public knows something that the characters do not know, as we were saying before. And this gives them some sort of pleasure. So, the following question, satisfaction. So you are happy because you feel better. Okay, whoever of us... Okay, Homer Simpson is built up in such a way that whoever of us is better than Homer Simpson. Well, what I'm always struck from is that the Simpsons do not have a, a positive character. And I had a discussion about this this summer in Germany. In German, and I lost the argument because it's really hard to argument about this in German. And, uh, <laughs> but I had a point. The only good character to me is... is, uh, is how is it? Lisa. No, Lisa's not. Aha, uh -huh, you are like the German people. <laughs> I suspect that Lisa is uh, is uh, alienated from reality 
too intellectualistic, not effective, uh, and doesn't have any understanding of what's actually going on. What, do you remember? Okay, oh no, no, I shouldn't be talking about this. That episode in which Lisa tries to help Mr. Bans to convert some his industry into some sort of recycling industry, and it turns into a major ecological disaster. Like she is a, car a parody of the liberals, basically. Of, of, of us. Sorry. Oh, the child, the little child. Oh, come on, he shoots. He She doesn't speak. She, sorry. And say it again. She I, does she? Well, this is a point for her. But another <laughs> point that she has is uh, uh, here we go. And she cannot speak, but she solves the situation. That's, have, uh, do you, can you recall this? She always solves the situation. She comes out at the last minute, and everybody doesn't know where she is. Like, where she is? Oh, here she is. She's throwing a, a rock on the bad guy. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking of. But then again, I don't know. The Germans, the Germans beat me on this. <laughs> okay, whatever. So when, as I'm saying, the, the comic characters must be built in such a way... Okay, Homer is the perfect character. Homer has no quality whatsoever. He is not even a good person. In the movie he is, but the movie had to sell, sell tickets. And, uh, you know, he's not even good-hearted. He's just egoist. The point is that we all feel much better than Homer. We all mock Homer. Although there is a very interesting social phenomenon, which is the identification with Homer, which is, uh, you know, the T-shirts. And, and friends of mine who imitate Homer and think of themselves as Homer in particular. But then again, I have, <laughs> yeah, I have a friend of mine who <laughs> was very proud of this. Uh, as I'm saying, there's this sort of superiority, okay? We all feel smart when we see The Simpsons. And this is something that appeals the heart and not the mind. This is what Duckworth says. And this is what Hobbes says as well. No? This theory boils down to which ancient philosopher? So, sound effects. Which ancient philosopher is... This is kind of tricky, but it says in a way. Plato or Aristotle? Plato. Plato has... Uh, is influenced by Socrates, of whom he is uh, a pupil. So it's also hard to distinguish which features of Platonic philosophy come down from Socrates and which ones are, are Platonic. And uh, to assess the, uh, the, the actual thoughts, philosophical thoughts of... Uh, of Socrates is hard because Plato is one of our sources. And Plato talks about his, ma his maestro, his uh, teacher, but it's complicated. All right. Socrates used to have this theory, which is called ethic intellectualism. <laughs> ethic intellectualism meaning broadly that those who are evil or do the, the evil doers, the wrongdoers, I like this one, wrongdoers are wrongdoers because they do the wrong thing, because they think it's right. Whenever we think that something is right, we do it. That's how we work. Now, we think, okay, this is the good thing to do, and we do it. But if we have a false understanding of what is right, so if we are intellectually weak, if we don't understand what's good for us, we go for the wrong thing. So intellectualistic ethics, because our ethic, our good, well-doing, and they're doing good things or bad things, depends on our understanding of what is good. So Plato takes this theory and says basically that a philosopher who takes out from you your own knowledge, the right knowledge of what is right, will make of you a good person, which is basically the basis of Western education at all, because we are learned about things, about understanding the world. And the idea is that, that this will make of us better people, whereas ignorance makes us worse, which I think pretty much. I have good examples. I have good examples of very learned people who are, who are wrongdoers, but... Uh, <laughs> 
especially in the academia. But uh, uh, in general, this is the idea. So this has to do with comedy as well. Look, we, rep we represent, we have seen on the scene people who are worse than us morally. And since we are better morally, we feel better. So this has, this has to do with uh, ethics. This also has to do with intellectualism, which is uh, we know something that uh, the characters don't know. So the soldier thinks he's going to marry this beautiful woman who loves him. We know that it's not true. So we're better than him because we have a better understanding of reality. Also, another, another description of what uh, the comic is for, for Plato is that you are comic when you don't understand yourself. Another saying in ancient philosophy, which goes back to some Delphic knowledge and is known for, through Socrates, is... Uh, Know thyself. The, the main principle is know thyself. In, learn to know who you are. Um, this is a general philosophical aspect uh, of uh, ancient uh, philosophy, of ancient so-called ethic philosophy. So not, do not learn how nature works. Learn how you work. Learn how the human being is. This has also an uh, effect in comedy. Because uh, the characters which are comic for, for Plato are the characters who don't know themselves. Not only they don't know what's going on around, they're ridiculed, but they don't, know them, they don't know themselves. Who's a good example of a character who doesn't know himself, and that's why he's funny in our comedy, in our play? The soldier himself. The soldier not only doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't know him. That's why he gets deceived, because he doesn't have a knowledge of himself. Um, so the theory of superiority, the theory of incongruity, incongruity goes back to Aristotle, and has more to do with Aristotle's categorizing visual or vision of reality. That is, we have uh, an idea of how things should be, and whenever something strikes, is illogical, strikes with that idea, this is the comic effect. And then since it's time, let's go very shortly over the rest. Shortlissima. And satisfaction and disappointment. And then Fleming's theory achieves a reasonable harmony between the two main theories of comic. The comic spirit of Plotus and Teres is not particularly aggressive and derisive. This is Duckworth's idea. It's opposed to Aristophanes, who was a Greek uh, com uh, comedian, dramatist of the ancient Greek comedy. The comic spirit of Terence is more restrained and subtle. Braga's soldier, Pergopolinigus, is fooled by the slave Palestrio. And one of the way through the through one of the things which is funny in the, in the plot is that the co soldier compares himself to divinities, heroes, in an epic fashion. Okay, I'll see you next time. Thank you. Sure. Running through my idea for the paper. Okay, cool. So, after three? At three. Right at three, because at 3.30 I have another book. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.